China, the world's second largest economy and the up-and-coming major power in the international system. With so much focus on China over the last few decades, it only made sense to take a look at China's legal system and how it compares with that of the United States. Welcome to Episode 3 of the International Legal Comparecast. My name is Weston Smiley, and I will be your host. China's modern legal system is less than 40 years old. That's right, 4-0. Because of its infancy, China's legal system is being continuously changed and updated. Unlike America's estimated 1.2 million lawyers, China has only around 110,000. Despite China's enormous size, being 98% the size of America, and having nearly five times the population of America, they barely have 10% the number of lawyers. That is a massive discrepancy and is important to keep in mind when thinking about how the law is currently developing and implemented, in addition to how the court system operates, which I will discuss later. For context, between 2001 and 2004, a whopping 94,000 laws were promulgated in China. In the 16 years since then, only a fraction of those laws and those that followed would have had the opportunity to be applied, interpreted, adjusted, or overturned in the court system. In fact, Let's put all of this in perspective by looking at some statistics. One in particular can put the number of lawyers in perspective. The number of yearly murders per 100,000 people in China is 13,410. This means that, scaled up, every year there are over 186 million murders in China. 186 million. Even if only 0.1% of those were caught and tried, that would still be over 186,000 murders every year being tried by 110,000 lawyers in China. This is disregarding every other type of crime, and the lawyers are still vastly outnumbered. These are very interesting facts to keep in mind when looking at the Chinese legal system and are especially illuminating when we look at some of the other facts about China, particularly the court system. Before we dive deeper into those topics, though, I want to introduce some ideas about the international side of Chinese law, rather than the domestic side. My guest today is very well educated and has significant experience in the field of Chinese law, both internationally and domestically. My name is David Nathan Campbell, and I'm a professor of political science at uh, BYU-Idaho. Professor Campbell was gracious enough to give me some of his time to probe his knowledge of Chinese law, and I was able to learn quite a bit from him. This podcast may be slightly less focused in nature than the podcast from Saudi Arabia, but this is merely because, for your knowledge and entertainment, I decided to broaden my scope to include a bit more about international law this week, as it is a relatively new, codified form of law that is, in my opinion, becoming increasingly important in the modern day. China, particularly, as a rising superpower on the world stage, has an interesting role and style of diplomacy in the realm of international law. For some background, before I let my guest take over for a little bit, Professor Campbell has specific knowledge about environmental law in China because of his PhD work on China. I wanted to know when he published it specifically, and I wanted to know what he found in that dissertation. I thought this particular case study might be illuminative for myself and all of you listeners because of how it shows the Chinese approach to law in general quite well, 
despite its specificity and topic. One quick note before we jump into Professor Campbell's response. He mentions Chinese special economic zones a couple of times, and it is important to understand what that is. The special economic zones, or Jingji Tochu in Mandarin, are essentially China's way of opening up trade and markets to be more capitalistic without changing the entire infrastructure and economic style of the country. They began to be implemented in the 1980s as a method of bolstering Chinese trade and have continued to grow ever since. So, Professor Campbell, you let me know that you had actually published your dissertation on Chinese environmental law and policy. Um, what year did you actually do that? And can you give me maybe a little idea of what your thesis was and some of the things you discovered in that thesis? Right. So um, I did my, my PhD work at the University of Toronto, and I finished in 1997. Um, the dissertation is, is available as a publication, I guess, through the university, but I never published it as a book from, a, from another publisher. Um, it was finished in 97, as I say, and it was a case study of, of environmental policy implementation in um, one of China's special economic zones. Um, it's Xiamen, which is spelled X-I-A-M-E-N. Um, it's a city that's directly across the Taiwan Straits from, from Taiwan. And um, I mean, I guess one of the questions uh, that the dissertation was meant to answer is, although China had at, at that time in the 1990s, um, a whole host of, of environmental laws on the books, China's environmental protection obviously had, had gaps and problems. And so the, the question was kind of uh, what, what explains that and what, um, you know, what, where's the gap between law and what actually gets, gets implemented. And one of my key findings was that the, the way environmental protection was organized in China at that time did not allow for sort of independent supervision of, of whether environmental laws and policies were, were being enforced. Um, just as an illustration, um, I did get an opportunity to uh, interview the deputy mayor of this particular city and, you know, and was asking him questions about environmental policy. And this particular deputy mayor had as one of his jobs, uh, one of his assignments uh, was environmental protection. So he was over the local environmental protection bureau. But that bureau reported to the municipal government. It didn't. Uh, report, say, to some national body or environmental protection agency. And in interviewing him, I learned, um, well, I asked him, you know, the question about why isn't more done to uh, enforce environmental protection? And of course, this was a special economic zone. It was relatively early in China's economic boom. And he's, this is a rough um, paraphrase of, of how he answered that question. He said, you can't greet investors with environmental regulations. Um, and it just so happened that his own, his own portfolio, the, the responsibilities that he as a municipal official was assigned included environmental protection, but it also included attraction, 
attraction of investment. So in him was embodied the conflict of interest um, that, that sort of you know, became one of the themes of my dissertation, I guess. The idea that, that the political structure didn't allow for some authoritative body to check up on whether environmental regulations were, were enforced. You know, he, he was balancing two things and the pressure uh, from his political bosses and from the Communist Party of China was much greater on the, on the side of, of attracting investment than it was in enforcing environmental implementation. Okay, that's really interesting. Do you think that that has been remedied over the years? Do you think that they have gotten a little better at separating those conflicts of interest and having the oversight of a, a larger international body instead of just the municipal governments? So um, there have been several stages, and I haven't followed this as closely as maybe maybe I could have, but I am aware that in several stages, the national body in China, um, it's changed names a couple times. It's been a national environmental commission. It's had a, various names, but it has had its bureaucratic status enhanced in China, which, which gives it um, more authority when its interests clash with, with other bureaucratic entities. And so there is more authority and there's more i would suggest that there's has been at least at at times during the 2000s more political support for strong enforcement the chinese government has tried to do is to include environmental protection in the criteria by which political leaders are judged so the mayor and arguably deputy mayors as well um, do have some environmental criteria, um, formal criteria by which they are evaluated. And so um, there are better mechanisms um, in place, both because of that, um, those criteria for, for evaluating the performance of these leaders. Of course, economic performance counts too, right? Um, but that and the, the strengthening of, of the, the National Commission and then Environmental protection uh, department turned into a commission, et cetera. Those, those changes have helped things, but of course there's also just the underlying direction of, of the party. There's a lot to unpack there. Professor Campbell's statement about the influence of the party is vital to understanding Chinese law, but we will address this more later in the podcast. Right now I want to discuss a bit more about the conflict of interest embodied in the vesting of both environmental and economic responsibilities into the mayors and deputy mayors in China. There's something inherently odd about this decision, and while I acknowledge Professor Campbell's statement that they have gotten better at requiring an environmental conscience in these leaders, he also remarked that economic factors are still important. The underlying problem has not been solved. What is good for the environment is almost never what is good in the short term for the economy. It is comparable to placing a known purveyor of pirated DVDs in charge of intellectual property protection laws and telling them that the government expects very little changes in their business's profits. It is just inherently a poor idea to give people two conflicting roles and, in my opinion, obviously emphasize one of those roles over the other. But we will find as we continue through this interview, this is exactly the kind of behavior that China thrives on. 
The reason behind this is rooted in the role of international law in the world, and particularly in Chinese politicking. A complete understanding of international law is, of course, completely impossible to expound in the scope of one of these podcasts. However, there are two key points that are worth addressing when it comes to international law. First, international law is opt-in. The law only applies to countries who choose to let it apply to them, and even then, the law is not binding. Second, international law does not mean the same thing to every country. Some view the law as a tool to simply further their national priorities, while others view international law as a safeguard for their security, and others view it in multitudinous other ways. International law is not equal to every single country that enters into a treaty or convention. Every country uses international laws in different ways. Professor Campbell explains China's use of international law using the example of China's behavior in the South China Sea. So uh, I don't know how much background to give, but, but China has um, claims most of the South China Sea. If you take the standard international law rules on maritime boundaries, then um, Vietnam and, and the Philippines and several other countries have overlapping claims with China. Uh, the Philippines took the the matter to a court of arbitration, which China refused to to be involved in the process, and uh, they ruled that you know not only does China not have the right to claim the whole South China Sea, but their building of islands there, um, you know, contravenes some international environmental law as well. It's worthwhile to to point out though that China's claims to the South China Sea, they based on historical use, which is not the highest priority of, of uh, criteria by which one can decide an international law matter. Treaties are always the highest. But when China signed United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, they, they did make note of, you know, they entered a caveat. They weren't allowed to enter what's called a reservation, but there was a lower level um, opportunity to to sort of make a statement within the the parameters of the treaty about um, about how they felt about any specific issues and they did make a note that with respect to the South China Sea they they make historical claims to it so they when they joined unclose they did lay down a marker saying this is our but they are members of unclose and unclose goes by you know traditional international law rules that declare that you only own uh, 12 miles out and that um, your exclusive economic zone goes 200 miles out. And usually when those conflict, countries will agree to to draw a, a line sort of equidistant between where their claims would overlap. China has refused to do that. China typically on, on matters like this, rather than go to some kind of arbitration where all the claimants to areas within the South China Sea would get would get together, you know, including small countries like Brunei, which which has a small claim um, that overlaps with China. Uh, China prefers to deal with each of these countries bilaterally, so it's a bit of a, a divide and rule strategy. Uh, your your question, so that's all background. Um, your question is about where where is this going? The United States and the UK and Australia and I believe France still conduct occasional freedom of navigation operations through the South China Sea. They take their, their frigates close to the islands to say that these are international waters. And just because you build an island there, 
doesn't um, doesn't mean that that it all belongs to you now, um, and that's the U.S. position, and and the position of of, of some U.S. allies. During the Trump administration, uh, U.S. freedom of navigation operations actually increased in frequency to a degree, but nothing about the legal status really has has changed. We had, we just have claims and counterclaims. Um, the United States position is slightly weakened by the fact that the United States has not signed on close. The U.S. reticence to do that is not related to the South China Sea and has more to do with environmental regulations and things. I, where is it going? I think um, I think an opportunity was lost in a way during the Obama administration when China first began building these islands. And Xi Jinping said, you know, we won't put offensive military uh, equipment on these islands, but they've since done that. Um, I, I think there was a moment from my understanding during uh, early in the Obama administration when the question was before the administration. I think there are pros and cons for the United States on both sides about taking action. China has a lot of allies in the United Nations, and it has justices at the at the International Court of Justice, if you were to ever get this uh, boundary dispute taken there. And those um, artificially created islands with military installations are now facts on the ground, right? I mean, it, it would probably mean war if somebody tried to remove China forcibly from, from those islands. So um, it, it may take a very long time, but I don't see China being dislodged from from the South China Sea, um, it, it would take a, it, it'll take, what I meant to say was, it'll take a very long time for more and more countries to kind of accept the facts on the ground, decades, longer even. But I don't think the facts on the ground are going to change much um, unless there were were hostilities. And, and to me, part of the danger is that, um, and I'm not saying that the United States should not be doing freedom of navigation operations near China occupied islands in the South China Sea. But there is a danger in doing those that Chinese Coast Guard or Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army Navy vessels, um, you know, could accidentally collide. Close, close calls have happened several times. Um, and something like that happens, you better hope there's pretty robust communications between the two countries to tap things down, or or they could spiral out of control. So, it's it's a tricky situation. It's a volatile situation. I don't think the facts on the ground are going to change, you know, in my lifetime or probably yours. So, both sides just better be careful. Is is how I look at it. The behavior of China and its use or complete disregard of international law is extremely interesting and shows how multifaceted international law is when compared to domestic law. As a sovereign country, there is only so much other countries can do to stop you from doing something or make you do something. As Professor Campbell said, freedom of movement operations take place in the South China Sea, but that doesn't actually change the facts of the matter. International law is not binding in the same way that domestic law is. It takes a perfect storm of events to really allow countries to enforce international law on those that have agreed to abide by it. Moving back to our discussion about the power of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, Professor Campbell 
had very good insights into the power of the party in the specific field of environmental law and more generally. So governments, municipal governments, provincial governments, the national government are always under the direction of of the party. And so that hasn't changed. And that, to me, has a profound uh, influence on the rule of law and and how priorities are are set. I think the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party would like um, to have better environmental protection than they've had. I believe they have better protection now than they did in the 1990s. Um, but I think there uh, are still problems. They they would never give the equivalent of of the American um, EPA a blank check to do things that might be politically sensitive. So there will until the Communist Party no longer rules China, there will probably always be that problem at the top, and it kind of filters down down through the system. So when you say the the party, I know the CCP, the president of China is Xi Jinping, who has gone to great lengths over the last several years to secure his position as a long-term president of, of the country. When you say the party, how much of that power is centralized in, in Xi Jinping from your perspective? Xi Jinping doesn't make every decision about whether to fine a polluter, for example. Um, but I, some of your, some of, some of the, what we'll talk about, or I presume what we'll talk about um, is about the legal system more generally and, you know, the criminal justice system, um, for lack of a better term. So moving away a little bit from implementation of environmental law, China has made great, if, if we're looking at the past three or four decades, China's made great strides in making laws and in appealing to ruling by law. I don't say rule of law because ultimately the party is in charge. And um, you know, every little prosecutorial decision is not up to Xi Jinping, but people understand the interests of the party. Um, and, you know, there are interlocking and, um, and sort of uh, intertwined corridors of power. There are government um, chains of command, but there are also party chains of command, and some of the people wear hats in both chains of command. So the emphasis that the party is putting on one policy or one law at a time is, is always transmitted to officials in charge and they have an idea. I'm, I'm veering kind of off, but um, in, in the legal system, in the criminal justice system of, of the People's Republic of China, party considerations are never far from anyone's mind. And um, if push comes to shove, a party official at the same level of government can overrule a government official or a judicial uh, branch official. And so I, th I think one effect, um, not so much Xi Jinping as a, as a person being in charge of you know, making every decision on every case, but Xi Jinping's emphasis uh, since he came to the fore uh, has has been on strengthening the party. And that in turn has had an effect on, on, um, on how law gets enforced. Um, party interests um, have never disappeared, but I would say that um, 
that Xi Jinping's approach to strengthening the party would have an influence um, on making sure that China is still a country that's ruled by law, but doesn't necessarily have rule of law, meaning that ultimately the party, political party decisions can, can overrule what happens in the courts. This is obviously a huge difference from the traditional American system with the separation of powers. We will address how this gap is closing momentarily, but when looking at Western society as a whole, the power of the politicians is generally extremely separate from the power of the judiciary for very good reason. When the party has ultimate power, you open the door to rife corruption and overriding justice for the sake of saving face or proving your power domestically and internationally. Professor Campbell, as a Canadian and an outside observer of the American system, pointed out some similarities and differences between the judicial systems of the United States and China that he has noticed shortly thereafter. The, the Chinese legal system does have prosecutors, and when we're talking about criminal law, there are defense lawyers, um, but the sort of the, the balance of power between those two sides um, differs because of the power of the party and the, the notion that, that judges ultimately also have to take direction from the party, not, not just weigh the facts and weigh the law. Obviously, I come from an American perspective, and I don't know enough about other Western countries to, to speak on this, but I think that's a very interesting point you make because I think of judges as somewhat political entities, even in the United States. I guess I, I don't know if this is quantifiable in any way or if you have an example, but how much more political are judges that are appointed in China opposed to the judges who are appointed in the United States or, or other Western countries, if you... Yes. Um, so judges in the United States are, are sometimes appointed, and it seems like a pretty partisan process. And judges in some places are elected. So I would say it's more partisan and more um, political in the United States than in some other Western countries. That's, that's my experience. Um, you know, I'm a Canadian, so I um, have experience with that. Um, I also um, but but I would say that in in China it it affects more, particularly when we're talking about questions of of political protest or or um, national security law and those kinds of things. Um, that the party's interests will always always be taken care of, and there there's less there is a constitution <laughs> in China, but but there would be less you know weighing of constitutional protections. I think than than there would be in the United States, but I mean, I suppose there is a political element to the appointment of judges in almost almost any country, and they'd have to be on a on a scale. You know, I would say if the United States is in the middle and and China's towards one end, um, most Western countries are on the other side of the United States, right? Or many Western countries. I, I know there, <laughs> I know there are problems in some EU countries like Hungary and Poland, with with how political they're their judicial system is. Professor Campbell also shared a very interesting example of how China and its view of the West has changed since Xi Jinping came to power. The following example and discussion is important in understanding how China is struggling to diverge and disconnect itself from the West. So this is this is a tangent again, but uh, but I th I think it's worth mentioning, um, and it relates both to Canada and. 
back to the the notion of how things may have changed under Xi Jinping. I was aware that that in the 1990s, when I was a graduate student, that legal scholars and some um, even Canadian government aid money was going towards helping China, China's judges understand better how uh, Western judicial processes worked. Um, a professor I knew, not one that was an expert on China, but rather on, on Canadian constitutional matters, was, was involved in a project to take Canadian legal scholars and judges over to China to give them some training. I don't know this for sure, but my suspicion is that under Xi Jinping, anything that was still going like that during the 2000s probably screeched to a halt. So, uh, you know, there, there had been some movement and there is increased professionalism within the Chinese judiciary compared to, say, you know, the 1980s and 90s. But um, I don't, Xi Jinping is pretty insistent upon not allowing Western ideas, you know, in, even into universities, uh, let alone into the judiciary. So um, I suspect that that kind of thing has been heavily, heavily curtailed, if not stopped altogether. What do you think the future influence of that emphasis on not only anti-Westernization, but de-Westernization of kind of clearing out any Western ideas that have already made their way in? What kind of effect do you think that's going to have on China and China's relations, international relations, over the next couple of decades? Well, it's I, I guess we could see a, a foreshadowing of, of, of what's to come, maybe, in how Western countries are reacting to China's treatment of Uyghurs in, I mean, it stems into human rights, right? Um, if, if people don't have legal recourse against policies that discriminate against them, um, then we see the kinds of things that are happening in, in Western China, in Xinjiang, um, with with the Uyghur Muslim population, to me, actually, the bigger political question is is to what degree will Western com- countries um, begin to stand up for those things? Uh, and and so, one question that I've seen floated in a couple of European countries, and I don't, I, th- I think, in the UK, is whether a boycott of the of the um, Winter Olympics, which I believe in 2022 or 2024 are, are supposed to be held in Harbin in northern China, um, whether a boycott of those Olympics on the basis of what's happening in, in western China might pick up steam. I'd be a little surprised if it would, but the Chinese leadership would be very dismayed if that happened, right? And And you're young enough that you might not know about this or might not remember, but in, in 1980, the, the Olympics had a boycott because of the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. So, you know, and, and the United States and many Western countries didn't participate in those summer games in 1980. So um, if we have a repeat of that, it'll be interesting to me as somebody who watches Chinese politics and, and Chinese international relations to see um, how they react and and what happens. I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but that's something to to watch for. Now, this is a legal podcast, and I know that none of that conversation sounded very legal in nature. It was much more focused on the political situations that surround China and its relations with Western countries. However, when discussing international law, these political discussions are actually very important to understand how international law 
is applying to China and why. Some have labeled the Uyghur situation in China as a genocide and have petitioned the United Nations, the central governing body through which most international law is proposed and established, to recognize and deem it as a genocide as well. International law would then obligate the UN to intervene and rectify the situation in China because of a very important piece of legislation called the Responsibility to Protect, the role of which I feel is fairly self-explanatory. What I'm getting at here is that the politics surrounding China and its powerful status in the international system are at odds and play into international law quite directly. As Professor Campbell said, the rule of international law is dependent upon other countries deciding to intervene. Domestically, China is obviously not going to use the law to protect the Uyghurs, and so international law would have to take effect. But that will only happen if other countries decide it is worth the trade-off of a possible war and certainly harmed relations with China, the world's, again, second-largest economy that they most likely have a lot of ties with. International law is extremely multifaceted, and I will only focus on it for this podcast because of how extremely geopolitical the conversation inevitably becomes. Getting back to our discussion of the Chinese legal system for the remainder of this podcast, my research showed that the Chinese judiciary system often has very quick trials. This makes sense when we consider what we learned at the beginning of the podcast. The lawyers in China are far outnumbered by the crimes committed in China. Add to that the important role the ruling party plays in the judicial system, and we have a very interesting scenario that could very probably lead to problems in trials. Before we jump into Professor Campbell's response to these ideas, in the interview I mention a specific case to him. The Gu Kailai case was a murder trial in China that lasted a single day. The murder trial occurred in 2012, and the New Yorker reported that one of China's most famous lawyers ended up accused of murdering a British businessman. Her husband was the deposed political superstar, Wu Lai. This, as you might imagine, sent ripples through the international sphere. A one-day murder trial was extremely quick, even for China, but it is clear that the Chinese party had a hand in trying to mitigate the damage of such a high-profile case and safe face. Now that you know the background of this case, let's jump into the interview about the speed of Chinese trials and the concluding question of what Professor Campbell thinks is the biggest difference between the Chinese and Western legal systems. There are a lot of sources I found that offered a variety of opinions about the efficiency of the Chinese legal system. Uh, I also found in my own research that there's a precedent for expedited trials and specific cases that were very, very shockingly short, such as the uh, Gu Kailai trial that I'm, I'm sure you're aware of. Yep. Do you feel that the efficiency of the Chinese legal system comes at other expenses? Absolutely. I mean, sometimes it comes at the expense of justice um, or the truth, right? When when other evidence could have been brought to bear on, on certain cases, when it serves um, the leadership's purposes, high profile trials of, of people who could do damage to the, um, to the powers that be, um, are, are sort of shuffled through quickly. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, the major expense is occasionally justice. Now that's a very high profile thing when, when a Politburo member, um, you know, is accused of, uh, or, or Politburo member's wife is accused of, of complicity in, in murder of a foreigner. At a lower level, 
there is actually some awareness recently. I, I think I've seen articles in the last six months talking about China taking measures to, you know, this would be true with less high profile and less politically sensitive cases, but people who've been imprisoned improperly, we, we know there are cases in Western countries where, where people are, are freed after 10, 20, 30 years of imprisonment um, because new kinds of evidence uh, prove their innocence. China is aware of those kinds of issues existing in their own system. And I suspect um, because of the way their system is politicized that those problems might be even bigger there than they are um, in, in Western countries. But there is a recognition of that problem now. And I think that the Chinese judicial system is, they've, they've vastly limited the death penalty compared to how it was implemented 20 years ago. And they um, and have even more recently become concerned about wrongful convictions. So, you know how how they remedy it and how efficient they are at, at fixing the problem. I mean, Western judicial systems haven't fixed the problem either. Um, but but China's awareness is actually a good sign to me. You know that they're at least concerned about if they're not huge political implications, they're concerned about justice being done. And so. Uh, wrongful convictions are actually um, something they're taking steps to to mitigate. In your opinion, regarding the the domestic system, what is the biggest difference between China's system and those of Western countries that you're familiar with? <laughs> I don't want to get too political in making my comparison because I think there has been a little slippage um, in the American system in in rule of law. Um, during the during the Trump administration, to a degree, political direction being given to the Justice Department, etc. If you're asking me this question, and and I still think there are vast differences, but if you're asking me this question four years ago, I would more easily be able to say that a key difference is the involvement of party politics in judicial outcomes. I am slightly less comfortable saying that that's a huge difference now, but I still think it is a, a, a significant difference um, because the party makes all the appointments and um, judicial appointments and the party, um, you know, gives gives direction about how, which direction cases should go. And so at most levels of the judicial system, there is is some party oversight as to what's going on. And um, you know, we we don't have the same level in in most Western countries of of um, partisan involvement directly in cases, or or directly in in telling a judge which which way to rule. Most scholars, I think, Western scholars would see make the assumption that that the party ultimately rules, and and that judges have to take that into consideration. Um, I don't think if there are, if if I were before a judge for armed robbery or something in in a local court in um, in the United States, I don't think my party affiliation would be a factor in my conviction. Um, but it's possible that party concerns um, could affect that kind of decision more easily in China. Thanks to Professor Campbell for his willingness to appear on this podcast. I tried to tackle two large topics in this week's podcast. I hope it has been enlightening and has sparked your interest in researching more deeply 
into some of the things that I simply scratched the surface of this week. My own education in international politics has veered heavily into international and domestic law, and it has been fascinating to learn more and more about how politics and law are deeply intertwined, particularly on the international level. I urge you to research more deeply into these topics for yourself, and I hope that you were able to join me again in my next podcast. In the next episode of the International Legal Comparacast, I will be diving into the bygone worlds of Jim Crow in the United States and apartheid in South Africa. Both of these extremely racist systems have lasting impacts to this day, and I will be looking at both the past and present impacts of those policies on the next podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review to help spread the wonderful knowledge of law to a wider audience and let me know how I can improve. This has been Weston Smiley and the International Legal Comparacast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.